note taker, this is the main point about uh, the passage and about the message. And here it is. You have to see the future if you're actually going to live in the present. You have to see the future if you're going to be able to live in the present. There's two kind of angles we're going to look at that big idea from. And those are this, the present, or kind of the way life is right now. The present makes us groan or long for the future or the way God's going to make the world. Okay, so the way things are now makes us long for, yearn for the day when God makes everything better. But the reverse is also true. That's our second point, that the future, what God's doing with you and the world, actually, uh, it's so hopeful and so radical that it actually changes how you live in the present. It makes you be able to enjoy and endure whatever life is like for you right now. Okay, so the present makes us groan for the future, and the future actually helps us, helps us endure uh, the present. And so, this is Romans 8, 18 through 30. By the way, I'm going to elaborate a little bit as I read to try to explain some confusing things that we don't have time to, to cover later on. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. For the creation, all this world all around us, it waits in eager expectation kind of standing on its tiptoes, waiting for God's children to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration or futility, not by its choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Why? In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, and that it would be brought into the freedom and the glory of you, the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning almost as if in the pains of childbirth, right up until the present time. And not only so, but we also, who have the first fruits, or kind of an appetizer of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait also, eagerly, for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that's seen isn't hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we have hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And we don't know what we ought to pray for in our weakness. But the Spirit himself intercedes for you through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit of Jesus intercedes for God's people in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose or his agenda. For those that God foreknew, he also predestined, or basically he wrote the end of your story before your story started. And those uh, he predestined, why? Or to be what? To be conformed to the image of Jesus, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters in this family. And those that God predestined, he also called. And those that he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us blind to kind of figure out life on our own. We would have no way of connecting the dots and even knowing what we're here for. Or knowing if you're there, if you had not kind of spoken into the silence. And introduced yourself. And invited us into your family. Uh, through Jesus. And so we pray tonight that you would continue to grow your family. 
I pray that those who are kind of outside the house, looking through the windows, wondering what life is like in your family, I pray that they would see the door swung wide open and the invitation from you yourself to come in and to be a part. Um, And I pray for all of us who live in the house, who are in the family, uh, some of us who have kind of forgotten where we live and forgotten who our Father is. I pray that you would remind us in your mercy tonight. We ask this in your name. Amen. So I'm convinced that uh, all of us have a deep conviction and certainty that if you could see tomorrow, you would live differently today. If you could know the future, it would change how you live today. Uh, our imaginations make a lot of fun with this because like, if you knew the Mega Millions number tonight, would it change what you did after RUF before those numbers are announced in the next few days? Uh, or some of you had a biochem test today. If you had seen that test yesterday and you knew it was going to be on it, would it have changed how you studied last night? It might be too soon to bring this up if it went poorly for you. Uh, but would you have studied something differently or maybe more or maybe less because maybe it was an easy test? Uh, if I told you this is who you are going to marry, this is when you're going to meet him, would it change how you do relationships right now? Um, for some of you who are underachievers, you would kind of, kind of sit back and relax and wait for that fateful day to come. And for you overachievers, you would get a leg up and start uh, creeping on them on Facebook just to see what you're like. <laughs> But if I told you your future, would it change today? And I think in any of those scenarios, the resounding answer all of us would have is yes. If I knew what was going to happen tomorrow, yes, absolutely, it would change how I lived uh, today. Um, this is, it's not just a dream of the people in the room. This is a dream that everybody has, and it's why Hollywood kind of puts out movies every single year. It's like this plot line. Of someone who sees the future and it changes how they live today. Uh, that plotline never gets old. Um, this past summer, a lot of us who were still in town kept meeting up throughout the summer. And we would watch movies throughout the summer. And one of the movies that we watched was called Stranger Than Fiction. Stranger Than Fiction is the story of Harold Crick. Harold Crick is an uptight, kind of anal retentive, details oriented, bland and boring IRS agent. And Harold's job in the movie is to audit Maggie Gyllenhaal's character. She's uh, this sweet little owner of a tiny little local coffee shop. Uh, And Harold is basically showing up at her coffee shop every day, basically saying, you owe a ton of money in back taxes. And because he's such an uptight person, it's no joking around, nothing but business and a straight face. Like, show me your records, you owe a lot of money. And as the movie progresses, you realize that that's actually not the main point of the movie. Because Harold starts to hear this audible voice in his head throughout the day. And it's the voice of a lady. And he begins to realize that what's happening is he's hearing the voice of a lady who is literally narrating his life. Because she'll she'll say things like, Harold looked at his watch and realized he was running late for work. And so he ran down the stairs and got on the bus And he went into work. And then immediately on the screen, you see Harold looks at his watch. He runs downstairs. He's late for the bus. He catches it and he goes to work. And this stuff keeps happening where he realizes, here's what's happening. Emma Thompson's character is a novelist. She's a writer. um, And she's writing a story, a fictional story. And she has no idea that everything she writes and types up is actually immediately happening in real life in Harold Crick's life. She doesn't know there's a real Harold Crick. 
And the dilemma happens when uh, Emma Thompson's, when the author begins to uh, wonder out loud how to kill off her main character, because the story's coming to an end, and she has to find a way to kill Harold so that the story can resolve. Now, the problem is Harold hears her wondering out loud how to kill Harold. <laughs> and so all day long, he's hearing this conversation of how should I kill Harold? And Harold's going to die, but I just don't know how yet. And he starts talking back to this voice thinking it's God or something. And uh, the movie goes on, and he eventually connects the dots and realizes this is his life, and this is what's going to happen to him. Uh, and so what happens is it eventually dawns on him that he is going to die at any moment. That's his destiny. Because everything this novelist has written has already come true in his life. And so he is beginning to aware, uh, beginning to become aware of his future is limited. Uh, tomorrow, at some point, in some way, he's going to die. And so what happens after that is Harold's life begins to change Radically. Um, actually, his life begins to begin. And he's not as uptight anymore. He begins to loosen up. He begins to live a life that he never really lived before. Why? Because someone told him what was going to happen to him. Someone told him what tomorrow was going to bring and what his future was. So my question to you and this passage's question to you, no matter where you are with God, is this. If someone told you your future, if the author of your life audibly spoke to you tonight and said, this is what's going to happen to you, this is where your story is going to end, or this is how your story is going to play out, where it's going and where it's going to end, the question to you is, would it make any difference? Would it change the way uh, you spend time with your friends? Would you still worry about the same things you're worrying about tonight? Would you pray the same way? Would you suffer the same way? Would you use your time the same way? Would knowing your future make any difference today? So my question is actually bigger than that. What if five minutes ago, the author of your story did just tell you your future? What if you just did hear what your tomorrow will bring? If you're in Jesus. And what if he has said. Lock solid. This is what's going to happen to you. Does it make any difference? Now you know your future. Does it make any difference today? I told you earlier. There's two, uh, there's two angles. That we're going to look at that question. Of how should it make a difference? The first is. The way things are now. The present makes you groan for the future. What kind of present, when Paul says our present sufferings, what does he actually mean in this very first verse? Well, one of the reasons we give you the passage on the page is so you can follow along and learn to read the Bible as well and see this for yourself so you know I'm not just making something up. If you scan through the passage, this is what this present life looks like, or the present, what life is like for you right now, this is what God says as he looks at your life. He expects that your life is full of this kind of stuff. Verse 18, suffering. Verse 20, frustration, or the, or the literal word, futility. Verse 21, you're stuck in a world that is bound to decay and corruption. It's bent towards disintegration. Things fall apart. It's fragile. Verse 22, we're surrounded by groaning. 
We're surrounded by pain as if it's in the pain of childbirth. And then in verse 26, a world and a life of weakness and a life of uncertainty to the point that you don't even know how to pray sometimes. When God looks at your life, maybe he's more realistic than you are. Because that's what he sees. What does he mean by frustration and futility? He says the creation in the verse right after that. It's bound to, or it's, it's been subjected to frustration. Uh, literally what he means is that nature or creation, the world around you, was created to in a sense be your domesticated pet. Human beings were created to rule over creation like a good gardener that takes good care of his garden. Uh, but what happened when sin was unleashed into the world, this is what the Bible describes as reality, when sin was unleashed into the world, chaos hit everything. And it turned everything upside down, and it made everything misfire. Uh, and so now nature is misfiring repeatedly. It's not doing what it was designed to do. It's not domesticated. It's not a pet anymore. It's a roaring lion that bites. And so cells that were never meant to mutate and metastasize and kill people now metastasize and infect your grandparents and your parents and maybe us someday. Viruses that were never meant to go viral now do go viral and kill entire populations of people. Rain clouds that were supposed to water the earth and flourish it and make it thrive now gather in, in a way that their power is unleashed in an aimless, reckless, chaotic way. And hurricanes and tornadoes and floods happen and people die and the earth is destroyed by it. Animals bite, they sting, they poison, they kill. And it was never supposed to be this way. These are all bad things in a sense. That's what Paul means when he says that creation is frustrated, it's aimless, it's futile. It's not accomplishing anything. You would expect this myth of progress, everything's always getting better, but how is nature ever getting better? It's actually all getting worse. It's bound to disintegrate. If you leave anything in your life alone, what happens? Falls apart. You leave your relationships alone and unattended, they fall apart. You leave your car alone and unattended, it falls apart. You leave your mind and your intellect unattended, it atrophies, it falls apart. Everything disintegrates. And Paul says that's the kind of world that we live in. But he says something more that the world itself is in a sense in childbirth, in labor pains... As if it's waiting to give birth to the new creation, a new world that Paul will talk about a little bit later. Now, here's the point, though. What's the effect all of this frustration and futility has on you and me? Because this is kind of why it matters. Because all of that might be interesting to you. But why does it matter for you? The effect of this frustration and futility is the same way an effect like a super intense semester has on you. Um, or a super uh, hard season of life that you just really want to get out of. It makes you groan like a super difficult semester where you feel completely in over your head. makes you groan. I can't wait till summertime. It's so pressure-filled, so stressful, so bad in the moment. It makes you think of the future, right? Today is so hard, it makes you think of tomorrow and the relief from that. That's what the effect of all of this a frustration is supposed to have. But, if you're like me, and you are, uh, it doesn't have this effect oftentimes. And here's why. It's because we get so fixated on today that we never look 
to tomorrow. Or it's like we're so fog bound and so preoccupied with how tough the semester is or how tough life is that instead of letting it make us groan for the future and take hope, we just get stuck. It's like all we see is where we are right now. And we just, we implode under all of that pressure. And uh, for this reason, because we're kind of blind to the future, blind to our future, as God describes it, we begin to, in a sense, micromanage everything. There's a couple of key ways we respond. One is we go into hyper-control mode. Because if you don't believe that God himself has already written the end of your story, and that it's a good ending, a life kind of exponentially increasing kind of ending, then what are you going to do? If your life is kind of unanchored and untethered and just choose your own adventure, you've got to go into hyper-control mode to make sure that you end up in a good place. And that life will kill you, and it is killing you. And it's why we feel miserable. It's why we feel exhausted, because you can never control your life as much as you want to or think you can. That's why life hurts. That's why things fall apart even when you don't want them to. You're not as in control as you think you are, and I'm not either. Uh, But we think we can control things and micromanage and fix things today, Um, but we can't, and so we suffer again for that. Another way that we um, suffer because we're so fixated on today that we can't see tomorrow is anxiety and fear. And everybody in the room is an expert in worry. God says you are. I am. We are well trained in how to worry. The whole Bible presumes that. Um, and the reason why, I think, is, uh, is kind of connected uh, to what I just said. If the future is uncertain for you, and you have to secure your future, that is a terrifying existence. Because you are always having to make sure that everything's going to work out, and you know you can't. And so you're terrified of what's going to happen or where things are going to go in your relationships, in school, in your job, whether you're going to get an internship or not, whether your roommate likes you or not, everything across the board. One of the last ways maybe is that happiness for people like us who are fixated on today. We are so just captured by today and preoccupied with it that we can't see beyond the present moment. Another thing that happens is happiness is always elusive. It's always two steps ahead of you, just without reach, just beyond our reach. And the reason why is because if you believe that the kind of the end of the story is still open-ended, that God is not working through all things for your good, that everything's just kind of spiraling out of control in a random place, then guess what? You are going to try to bring heaven down in any way possible. You and I try to bring heaven down to earth through our relationships. So the next girlfriend or boyfriend you get, then I'm going to be safe. Then it's going to be like heaven. No struggle anymore. Just awesome life and beauty and excitement. The next hookup, the next guy or girl I sleep with is going to bring heaven down to earth. Do you see what we're trying to do? We're, try- we're so imploding because of the present that we are trying to bring heaven ourselves through all these different ways. The next paycheck, the next bump up the financial ladder, the next experience, the next relationship, the next hobby, the next party is going to bring heaven. And I'm going to be safe. My future is going to be secure. That's how we think. That's why this stuff matters. 
And so, uh, and maybe one last way is if, if those don't describe you, which I'd be surprised if they don't, they hit me at every point, is this. You just check out. Maybe you're a step ahead of the rest of us and you realize, I can't control my life. I can't make heaven happen through kind of substances and people and relationships and everything else. I'm not happy. And so you just kind of check out. You're so fixated on today and so afraid of today that today is actually what you escape. And though I'm not picking on these things, I watch them too. Hulu and Netflix can be great and restful things. They can also be ways that you escape reality and get out of your life so that you don't think about how things hurt. You don't have to groan. You don't have to be frustrated. And so through the next hobby, through the next TV binge, through the next procrastination binge, we push away life so that we can be safe. We need help, right? Have everybody's been hit by something there. And even if you've been hit by one, you realize we are desperate and we need help. Uh, and, and, and help is what God provides. But you've got to groan before you're ever going to look for his help or want his help. And so to summarize everything we just said before we finish up with our last point, if you dwell only on where you are now, you will never go anywhere. Christian, if you dwell only on who you are now and what you're like now, you'll never grow. If you focus only on where you are today, who you are today, you'll never grow. You'll actually lose today and tomorrow because you'll be lost or escaping it all. And so we do need help. How does God help us? He helps us by telling us our future. To scare people like us who are afraid that the future is still open-ended. He says, no, it's not. I've already written the end. And this is where you're going. And this is what's going to happen to you tomorrow. So the Bible is essential. The more familiar you are with the Bible, the more familiar you are with your own future and your own story. The second thing he does is he allows creation to push in on you and cut you. Who's subjected? Paul doesn't say that creation is just kind of off wild. He said someone subjected it to futility. God has allowed Everything around you, from microscopic cells to gigantic hurricanes to calculus that's just above your pay grade in terms of being able to figure it out. He allows creation to leave you frustrated. Why? Because he doesn't want you to fall in love with a world that's falling apart. He wants you to groan for the world that's supposed to be. The world that, was, that is coming, the world that was always intended. And so through the Bible and telling us our futures, through letting creation hurt us and cut us and make us groan. And third, he says, by his spirit, teaching you how to pray in the midst of the groaning and the suffering. And so as God is doing these three things for you, with you and in you, it pushes us to the, to the last point. That it's not just that the present groaning makes us or should make us look to the future. It's also that when you actually become familiar with the kind of future God says he's written for you in Jesus. It changes everything about how you live today. The same way that Harold Crick, when he heard his future, it changed everything about how he lived today. That's how real this is. As real as if I told you who you're going to marry, or what's going to be on the test, or what the lotto numbers are. God has told you your future. Does it matter? Does it make any difference in our lives? The good news is the reverse of everything I said earlier is also true. Here's what I mean by that comment. 
I said earlier, if you dwell on today, you'll lose both today and tomorrow. Your life will kind of drain away in anxiety and fear and depression and everything else. But the, the reverse is also true. If you open your eyes to your future in Jesus, it's like the light of tomorrow breaks into the clouds of today. The light of the future breaks into the cloudiness and the darkness of the present. And you begin to be able to see again. I said earlier, if you fixate on what you're like now, and you, uh, you're destined to a life of discouragement because you're not as sanctified or as holy as you want to be at this point in your life as a Christian, or you're not as mature as you think you should have been, or your sin struggles are harder and more fierce than you thought they should be at this point, if you focus on what you are now without looking to who you will be in Jesus and what you will be like in the future... There's only discouragement. But if you look to what he says here, verse 29, if you look to these things, then it absolutely changes how you think about yourself. Verse 29, for those that God foreknew, he also predestined or wrote their story all the way to the end. Why did he do this? So that you would be conformed, which is a fancy word for you will be made like Jesus in every single point. Emotionally, sexually, intellectually, vocationally, relationally, physically. He's resurrected, you'll be resurrected. He's free from sin, you'll be free from sin. He'll never die again, you'll never die again. That's what he's saying. Jesus' story begins to come, become your story. Do you dwell on who you are becoming in Jesus? It will liberate you from discouragement about who you are and what you're like now. And you've got, we've got to be helping each other see both. Not just talking about how much we struggle now, but talking about who God is making us patiently and slowly uh, in Jesus. And finally, uh, one other thing is clear. Your destiny is certain. It's rock solid. God doesn't say, hey, choose your own adventure. There's three options for you. He says, if you have looked to Jesus, if you felt feeling your own groaning have begun to look that maybe this God is who he says he is, maybe he's actually doing what he says he's going to do. And maybe there's hope for me. And you look to him, he says, your future is absolutely secure and certain. And so in a sense, if you dwell on tomorrow, you get today thrown in. C.S. Lewis said, uh, if you focus on earth, kind of focus on worldly things, you will lose both the world and heaven. If you focus on heaven, the earth is thrown in, or the world is thrown in, because your perspective is right. It's a healthy perspective. It's a liberated perspective where you don't become an addict and a parasite having to consume all the things of the world. And that's the same thing uh, that this looking to the future at what God's doing with our stories will do for us. I wanted to tick through a few really quick examples of why, of what it would look like that this actually does begin to make a difference tonight. Because if I told you who you were going to marry, I guarantee you it would make a difference to tonight. Or the lotto numbers, or the test. It would change you. And this changes us infinitely more than that. Here's a few things of where I think this applies. Number one, what is it, uh, how does life change if Jesus is making all things new? And if everything else in this passage is true. Well, one thing is it means you don't have to kind of follow along like, a, like a, in the rat race of the American obsession with body image. Here's what I mean. I would say most Americans, including myself in this, most Americans are enslaved to dieting, working out, calorie counting, whatever else. 
It's absolute slavery and addiction, and it kills people. Not just literally with eating stuff, but even those who kind of eat good and look good. And the reason why is because we work out because we think that there's some way that we can maybe not have to die one day. Or maybe if I work out, my body will not disintegrate like all of the old people I've ever seen look like they're disintegrating. <laughs> you are too, and I am too. And so the Bible, this, the gospel actually frees you to work out because you enjoy working out. It frees you to eat healthy because you want to steward your body. You know that God cares about your body. You're not just going to be a soul floating around in heaven one day. Your body, a perfected and glorified body that leaves you regretting nothing and lacking nothing, that's what you're going to have for eternity. So you begin to take care of it and honor it because God loves your body. And he's not throwing it away. It's going to be resurrected. So you work out for really good reasons. You're not a slave to nutrition or working out. You actually get to use it well. And it's a servant to you, not a master to you. You get to give away your time. You get to go get lunch with people you don't know tonight. Because you've got nothing but time on your hands. Right? Isn't that an implication? If you're going to be alive forever in a new earth when God makes everything right, and all you have now is time on your hands, doesn't it free us to give away time, which is probably our most precious resource? We are far more generous with our money than we are with our time. Does, this, does the gospel free you to be a generous giver of time? To maybe help someone new here feel more at home? Or if you're new here, to push through the shyness and the insecurity to maybe get to know and love other people who've been here for a while. Frees you to come to a small group, even if it's hard for you. For these very reasons, so that we can remind each other, this is where we're going. A couple of other things. It means, uh, this is one I thought of the other year, partly because I'm a pastor. I'll never have enough money to globetrot. But all of my friends from college do have enough money to globetrot. And I get their Christmas cards with, like, leopard skin on them. And they're like, look, I was in Hawaii, or uh, I was in Africa. And then I was in uh, Thailand riding tigers. And then I was in Europe going down the, the rivers in Paris. And I'm not, I'm not um, hating on that at all. There's, there's good ways to enjoy the creation. But I, I w- my observation is a lot of people are trying to bring heaven down to earth through travel. There is a really practical implication here. You don't have to take a lifetime of cruises and vacations and globetrotting, because you're going to be here forever. And all of these places are going to be a heck of a lot better when they're perfected. And there's no sadness, there's no sickness, there's no death, there's no human trafficking. There's no prostitution, there's no child slavery. Your vacations will be better in the new heavens and the new earth. It frees you now to maybe go to poor places that suck, and to help people. Or maybe take a mission trip instead of that vacation. Because you know what God's doing with the world. And you want to be a part of it. Because the future's already been written. And you're in on it. And it changes how you live today. Maybe the last thing. You get to face death with courage. We don't think about death much. Some of you have had a friend last semester or in the past couple of years pass away. And it matters to you. But for most of us, I realize death isn't something we think about. It's something people on their deathbed think about. But this actually frees you to know death is yet another passageway into a different chapter. Because my story's already been written. And life gets the last say in your life. Because Jesus is life, and he's the author of your story. And so death doesn't have anything to say about your story, except a mere transition. 
Those are a few ways that this matters. Before we end, I wanted to bring this back to what Valeria read earlier from Revelation chapter 21. She said when she read that passage, what is the end of the story? What's the future? What does your tomorrow look like? She said, uh, Jesus says about your tomorrows, I will wipe every tear away from your eyes. That presumes groaning, right? You show up to heaven with tears on your cheek. I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And in this new earth, there will be no more death, no more crying, no more pain. And get this, for the old order of things, the, the way things were has died or passed away. And the new has come. C.S. Lewis tells us why this matters. He said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for this world were precisely the ones who thought the most about the next world. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the entire Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English churchmen who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It's since Christians have largely stopped thinking about the next world that they've become so ineffective in this world. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Tim Keller adds a fun little thing at the end that we finish with. He says, when you get to this destination that Jesus is taking you to, that he has won for you, that this ending to your story, it's actually not an ending because he says, when you get there, you will say, I've come, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it. Finally, we will begin chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read and which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before it. Did you think Christianity was just about escaping from hell or God forgiving you? I got good news for you. You have a tiny gospel and a tiny Christianity if it is. Jesus is going to make every single molecule new. And that is your story if you're resting in him. And if you're not, what comes right after what Valeria said is this. Spirit, same spirit here, and the bride say come. To all who are thirsty, come and drink without payment. And so even if you're not looking forward to this future because of Jesus, he invites you into this future.